The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. I would like to invite you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As I was thinking about uh, the sermon this morning, and I was thinking about one of the things is I always enjoy being able to stand up here with y'all and be able to preach from the word. Um, this week, Mike Landrum was supposed to join us. Uh, he is one of my mentors from North Greenville University, a youth ministry professor. He's done winter retreat for us before, and uh, he got sick this week and is not feeling well. So I share that with you that you might be praying with him. The goal is to have him come in next week and be able to share with us. But I, I look forward to joining, walking through 1 Corinthians 15 together because the reality is that there are a lot of things that have gone much differently this morning than we might have planned. But that does not catch God by surprise. It does not catch him off guard. This is still according to his sovereign plan. And we can be confident in that as we walk through these verses together today. Before we read the verses, I want to share with you a little bit about me and my growth in understanding the gospel. When I moved from West Virginia to go to North Greenville, my understanding of the gospel is very small. I'd been helping out with VBS. I'd been helping out in, in camps before. I was plugged into ministry already. It was something I was already very passionate about. I'd been saved when I was six years old, praying with my Sunday school teacher, knowing that I wanted Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of my life. But as I've grown up, God has given me a more full understanding of the gospel and what it means in our lives. And I still have so far left to go. But I remember when I was about a sophomore at North Greenville in my second year of college, there was a book I came across. And I've been trying to think about how I was introduced to the book, but I, I really don't remember. Now, I have a list of books in my life that are books apart from Scripture that have influenced me the most. And this book stands at the top of it. This book's called The Explicit Gospel. It's by Matt Chandler. This book was released, I think it was about 2012, and I found it in about 2014. I started reading through it. And in this book, it's exactly what the title says. This pastor, Matt Chandler, defines the gospel clearly, talking about what it is and what it isn't. And in reading this book and in examining what he was saying and comparing it to Scripture, I realized that I didn't have the understanding that I thought I had. For me, I thought the gospel was more focused in a point in time, that trusting Jesus was focused in that prayer that I prayed when I was six. And yes, I should tell others about it. But for me, I thought if I could get others to pray the same prayer that I had when I was six, then they wouldn't be going to hell anymore. They loved Jesus, and then I could move on and find someone else and do the same thing, share with them to the point where they are convinced that the gospel is true. They could pray, love Jesus more, and then I could move on again. But that's not what the gospel is about. And the picture that he painted as he walked through Scripture and clarifying the gospel was that the gospel is not limited to a point in time but something that begins at a point in time and has impacts throughout the rest of eternity. So in our lives, it often looks like that prayer that we've prayed. Maybe for some of us, if your testimony is like me when you were a kid, maybe there's a turning point in your life that you can look back on and know that's when you gave your life to Christ. That's when you repented of your sins and trusted him. But the gospel or salvation is not just limited to that one point in time. This opened my eyes. See, he began that book because as he was a pastor of his church in Texas, one of the things he realized is they were baptizing believers and they would share their testimony before they were baptized. Is that so many people would say that they, were, they had prayed a prayer when they were six or seven, but it made no difference in their lives. And now they have these 
uh, upper 20, early 30-year-olds coming in and saying, well, this is the first time I've repented in Jesus. Why was that the case? And he started to examine Scripture, and it's because he found that most people don't have a full understanding of the gospel. They think it's hell insurance. It's a prayer that you pray, the sinner's prayer. Repeat after me. And as long as you do that, you're good. Not knowing that when we lead people to do that in the wrong way, and we don't clarify, we're just getting people to trust in a prayer, not in Jesus. And so one of the things that I've tried to push myself to is to make the gospel as clear as possible every time I have the opportunity to preach it. And so this morning, as we walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that is my goal for you. My goal is to proclaim the gospel as clear as I possibly can. The reason why we are rooted in this text is because Paul is doing exactly that. He is clarifying the gospel. He's setting a foundation to the church in Corinth about what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. And so I want to walk through this passage. And the one thing I want you to see throughout all of it, my main point this morning, is that the gospel reminds us that we are loved. The gospel reminds us that we are loved. Let's look at these first 11 verses in 1 Corinthians 15, and then I'll draw out some truths that we see in it. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. In these first two verses in this section of Scripture, we see the truth that had been revealed to me when I was just a sophomore in college. You see that there's three periods of time talked about in verse 1 and 2. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Now, in essence, what we're seeing here, if we really boil it down, is almost a past, present, and future implication of the gospel. What you received at that point in time, which if most of us were to kind of name that point in time, for a lot of us, it looked like praying a prayer of salvation, trusting Jesus, declaring that to him through prayer of which we received, in which you stand as believers. We stand in the gospel and the truth of what Jesus has done for us. We don't pray a prayer and move on to something else. And by which you are being saved, which while it sounds past tense, is really talking about the future implications. When Jesus comes to make everything right, when our salvation on earth is complete and we are taken to be with him in the new creation. It's written in this past tense language because Paul was so sure of it that it was as if it had already happened. And we see immediately in these first two verses that the gospel is not limited to a point in time. Rather, it begins at a point in time and has implications throughout our lives and throughout eternity. 
Salvation is the basis, that justification, the point in time that we repent of our sins, trust Jesus to save us. This is the foundation, the starting or the launching point for sanctification, where we spend the rest of our lives as believers in Jesus, pursuing him and being conformed into the image of Christ as the Spirit convicts us of sin and we repent and begin to look more and more like Jesus in a very slow, sometimes frustratingly slow process. And we have to understand this about the gospel to understand why the good news of Jesus Christ is still something for us to look at here today. Why at times it feels like we sound like broken records still saying the same thing every single week and it's because we never grow out of it. This is the gospel in which we stand. And so knowing that the gospel is not limited to a point in time, but rather it begins at a point in time, has implications for our life and throughout eternity, let's look at what exactly this gospel, this good news is, as Paul defines it in these verses. First, the gospel begins with the fact that Christ came and died. We see this in verses 3 and 4. Paul specifically points out that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And by explaining that Christ died, it must mean that Christ lived. And we have to examine this part of the gospel to understand the weight of the fact that Christ died. So why did Jesus come? Well, his life was absolutely incredible. And Greg looked at the centrality of Christ last week in his sermon as we walked through John chapter 1. And it's beautiful how God set forward for these two sermons to be back to back because there's so much at play in what we're talking about here today. That Jesus didn't step onto the scene in the New Testament, but he was always existing as the second person of the Trinity. That he was there at creation. That the gospel was not plan B, God's response in light of Adam and Eve's sin, where he had to sit down, call a council meeting of the Trinity and say, all right, boys, what are we going to do? They really messed this one up. We had one job for them. They blew it. How are we going to make this right? That's not what happened. The gospel was the plan all along. God and his sovereignty knew. And Jesus was there, the second person of the Trinity. And right after the fall, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, we see the first promise of the coming Messiah. In Genesis 3.15, God tells them, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he says this to the enemy in the garden, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You will be defeated, Satan. You will not have the last say, for I am sending one who will make all things right. We know that person to be Jesus Christ. And Christ's life is important because we have to recognize that he lived a perfect life. That he grew up as we did, facing all the trials and temptations that we have, yet in all of them he did not sin. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. Philippians 2 talks about how Christ willingly came. Christ willingly humbled himself, looking at his position in heaven, sitting on the throne, and being willing to let go of that, that he might come to earth and grow up, be a man, be humbled to be born. In Jesus, we have the fullness of God taking on flesh. 100% God, 100% man, combined together in this beautiful union that makes only Jesus, only him, the only Savior for our sins. If Jesus had skipped over being born and living a life as we have, experiencing the temptations but not giving in to them, If he had skipped over that, then our salvation wouldn't be complete. 
Because we wouldn't have the perfect righteousness that we need credited to our account because Christ had never earned that righteousness by being perfect in our place. Instead, there is a big gap missing in our salvation. There's a requirement missing from our salvation. That's why Jesus had to grow up. He had to live a perfect life. And consider this for a moment. Like, this is bigger than Jesus just being born and growing up. But think about the specifics of it. See, we talk about this beautiful mystery that Jesus is fully God and fully man to 100% not compromising and either existing in him. Think about what this means. Like Jesus, second member of the Trinity through whom all things were created, humbled himself to the point that he had to learn. While knowing all things as God, as man, he grew up and developed just as we did. The God of all creation in Jesus had to grow up. He had to learn. He had to struggle with things. He had to learn to walk, had to learn to move, to communicate. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn to feed himself. This is the God of all creation who is not short on power when he created all things, but in the person of Jesus Christ as he grew up, he had to learn to even feed himself, learn to read the very things that he had written in being the word. It's a beautiful mystery because the reality is that every single one of us has sinned. Honestly, we live at a culture where at this point in time, it doesn't take a lot of convincing for people to recognize that they've sinned. The issue is how do we solve this sin? How do we solve it? For a lot of us, we can either make light of sin and pretend that it's just some brokenness inside of us or we have some quirks in our personality and we make light of them and don't realize the punishment that is for sin because God in being holy and in being perfect must punish every single sin. If he does not punish sin, he is no longer perfect, he is no longer just and thus he is no longer fit to be God. The scripture makes clear that God will punish every single sin ever committed in history. Every one. And Scripture also makes clear that the one who deserves the punishment is us. The ones who have committed cosmic treason, shaking our fist at God and telling him that he doesn't know what he's talking about. We're the ones who deserve it. We talked about a couple weeks ago uh, on Easter Sunday, we were talking about God's holiness. I brought up this imagery of light and darkness because it's just one of the easiest ways to describe God's holiness. And I think when we understand God's holiness in those terms of light and dark as the Scriptures describe God's holiness then it begins to make more sense the great trouble that we're in apart from Jesus in terms of our imperfection. See, if God's holiness is light, and we use that imagery of just pure, radiant light, God's perfection is the imagery of light. And our perfection is darkness. Darkness, by nature of what it is, and being the absence of light, cannot exist within light. You can't shine a flashlight and try to make darkness appear right in the middle of it. It doesn't work that way. Light consumes darkness. And so in the same way, God's holiness by nature of his perfection consumes imperfection. Imperfection cannot exist in holiness because then it would cease to be holy. And God is so holy that his holiness consumes the imperfections just as light swallows darkness. This is the reality of our sin. This is why we cannot stand before God in and of ourselves. We will be consumed. And the Bible uses that imagery. It sounds harsh. 
And a lot of times we hear that and we just think, well, God, can't you just dial back the punishment a little bit? I mean, it is just a sin that we're talking about, but he can't. In his character, he is holy and he is just. His holiness must consume imperfection. Like, this is the problem that we stand under. This is the problem that our sin creates for us. It is not a little problem. It's not just a quirk in our personality. It is that we have just punishment and condemnation coming for our sin unless we do something about it. But we can't do something about it in our own power. We can't live a life perfect enough. Even in trying to do that, there's a flaw in it. We'll talk about that in a couple minutes. So Christ lived, he lived a perfect life, but Christ also died. Christ's life builds up to this pinnacle moment where he dies on the cross. If you walk through the gospels, his life and his ministry and the things that he teaches, they always point towards this pinnacle moment where it's his death on the cross. Christ came to die for our sins. And while God is holy and it established a way to have right relationship with him, we aren't perfect and we've disobeyed, but Christ hadn't. We were deserving of God's holy wrath, but Christ gave himself as a sacrifice. Think of how maniacal, how twisted it would be of God. The God who punishes sin and his holiness and justness, and also the God who knows all things. Think of how maniacal and twisted it would be for God to look at us, standing under the condemnation for our sins, and to tell us that we were okay to lie to our faces, knowing what was coming for us, and to tell us that we're okay. It's more loving of God to declare that you're in danger, but I have made a way out. And that way out is Jesus Christ. Christ didn't die any type of death. It wasn't just natural causes. It wasn't just a normal death. Instead, Jesus was crucified upon a cross humiliated for me and for you that we might have salvation in his name. And so we see that the story of Christ begins with him as the second member of the Trinity seated in heaven. He humbles himself by becoming man, which is already unheard of. But in Philippians, Paul describes in chapter two that Christ humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, the highest of highs seated in heaven. The lowest of lows, crucified, humiliated. We think about how Jesus was falsely accused. And scarcely would one of us, when we are falsely accused, say silent about it. It's one of the most unjust things that we can ever experience in our lives. When we are falsely accused of something that we did not do. It's wired into our nature to speak up about it. We want to argue and to push back against it. Yet, when Jesus was falsely accused... We see his humility in his silence, in his willingness to be falsely accused, and then to take the unjust punishment in our place. His love for us was so great in that. Think about not only his silence as he's accused, but think about the fact that Christ, his creator, made the very Roman soldiers who whipped his back The very Roman soldiers who drove the nails into his hands and his feet, he knew them. He knew their names. He knew their stories. He had created them. He had plans for their lives. Jesus, as God, could have spoken at any point and ended everything that was happening to him. Yet we see his humility as he takes that punishment and does not make it stop. 
He follows through with it. Why? Well, to the glory of God the Father and that we might see his love for us. Man, when we understand that Jesus willingly laid aside every advantage of being on the throne and then lowered himself to the lowest of lows by taking a punishment that we deserve, that we should have taken, can there be any doubt in our mind that he loves us? How great must his love be to step off the throne in heaven, off of that position and the advantages of being in that position, to take on flesh and then to humble himself to a cross innocently accused and dying an innocent death and not saying a word, not making it stop, but following through to the glory of God the Father. Christ's death declares God's love for us. He made a way to be near to him. So we see that Christ lived and that Christ died, but we also see in these verses that Christ lives again. We see this in the second half of verse 4 all the way through verse 9, that Jesus was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Again, a reminder that this was the plan all along. Not that Jesus died and suddenly the father's like, oh man, that wasn't supposed to happen. We'll just bring him back and try again. That's not what's going on here. This was the plan all along, all according to God's sovereignty and that Christ lives again. So when we look at the heart of the gospel, what this good news is, it's that Christ lived a perfect life in our place, died in our place, and that he lives again. Specifically, Paul goes out of his way to mention the people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. Paul is grounding this in history and in reality for us to remind us that this is not some fairy tale or some fable told about Jesus. We see that he appeared to Cephas or Peter that he appeared to the 12. Then we see that he appeared to 500 at once. Now think about how specific that is and how Paul goes out of his way, not to say that Jesus appeared to 500, but to 500 at once. Because if Jesus just appeared to 500 people throughout the course of his 40 days on earth after he was resurrected and before he ascended back to heaven... Well, then you can make the argument that the disciples got some money together and decided to pay these people off to believe a lie, to just explain that and to spread it. If you can get 500 people to start saying it and they say they saw Jesus at different times, well, then we can have a good start to it. But that's not what happened. 500 people at one time. You know one thing 500 people can't do at the same time? They can't have the same exact mass hallucination. 500 people at one time. Jesus appeared before them because it is being rooted and grounded in reality that this isn't some fairy tale that these apostles of the early church are teaching. They're not teaching something they wished to be true. But Paul is saying, let me name people off for you. If you don't believe me, go ask them. They've seen the risen Savior. Oh, and in fact, he appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. If you want to ask anyone, go find one of them. But then... He adds another case study on for us, another way of grounding the resurrection of Jesus in reality. He mentioned Jesus' own half-brother, James. Now, I'm an only child, so I've never had to deal with this before, but I want to appeal to you who have siblings. How hard would it be to convince your sibling that you're perfect? How many of y'all have ever thought about or considered the fact that James was convinced that his own brother, Jesus, was the savior 
of the world. Now it took Christ's death and resurrection. We see in the Gospels that his brothers don't stand with him during his ministry. But something had to happen to take James from a place of doubting his brother. And let's be honest, probably rightfully so. Because again, like imagine your sibling coming up to you. Hey, I'm the savior of mankind. God in the flesh. You know, before Abraham was, I am. What are you talking about? But something had to happen to convince James that this was true. And what happened was Christ. He saw Christ die and saw him alive again. And James was so convinced, knew it to be true, to such a degree that he called his own brother his Lord, and rightfully so, that James was willing to serve Jesus Now, again, this isn't something I would encourage you to try with your siblings, but just consider how difficult it would be to get one of your siblings to consider you Lord and master over you. That would be really weird. But that's the reality of what's going on with Jesus and with James. Something had to happen to convince James of that. So we have these three case studies grounded in reality. And then Paul gives one more himself. Paul was the greatest terrorist of the church, the greatest terrorist the early church had ever seen. His name alone was feared. He brought about mass persecution for the early church. And he thought he was standing in the plan of God by persecuting those early believers. He saw Christians as heretics going against the faith that Israel had known for so long. What Paul didn't realize was he was standing against the church of God. And even as a terrorist, God was using Paul to further the gospel. But then... On the road to Damascus, Paul has a personal encounter with Jesus, the bodily resurrected Jesus, and his life changes forever, where he goes from the biggest terrorist, the biggest persecutor of the church, to an apostle preaching the very gospel he persecuted, to an apostle taking upon himself the persecution that he had been once a proponent of pushing to the churches. Something had to happen in Paul's mind and in Paul's heart for him to go from the terrorist of the church to one of its loudest preachers. He had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And so we see Paul rooting and grounding this in reality, challenging the church to talk to any of them to see the truth of it because Jesus really had been raised. And this is important to the gospel because it proves two things. First, it proves that Christ really was who he says he was. The penalty for sin is death. We see that in Scripture very clearly. So if Jesus died on the cross and then remained in the grave, well, then he had sinned because the penalty for sin is death. But because death could not hold him, we see that Christ really was perfect. He really is the Son of God. Not only that, but it also means that Christ paid the penalty for our sins in full. The price was paid. His identity confirmed. Son of God. He is resurrected. The price paid in full. Nothing left to be paid. Christ is resurrected. And the beauty of this is that if we do not have a gospel with the resurrection at the center of it, we miss out on what the gospel means for us. Because I don't know if you have a physical copy of your Bibles in front of you right now that you're looking at. But if you look, the rest of chapter 15 is all what the resurrection means for us. It all hinges upon the fact that Christ really is resurrected. And Paul, even at one point in this chapter, goes to say, all right, let's say hypothetically Christ isn't resurrected. Then what does that mean for believers? It means that if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. 
If the dead are not raised, if Christ really isn't alive, then this life is all we have and we better make the most of it. But that's not true. Christ really is raised. And because he is alive today, here's what it means. For those who belong to God, who trust in Jesus for salvation, death has no hold on you. It is only a temporary separation And everything we do now has an impact on eternity. As Paul describes the realities of the resurrection, he reaches this pinnacle moment at the end of chapter 15 in verses 54 through 57, where you can just almost read the passion coming off the pages as he writes, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And since these things are true, they must make a difference in our lives. And that's the last truth I want you to see this morning. In verses 10 and 11, these truths make a difference. So Paul began this section by reminding the readers that the good news has implications even today, the gospel in which they stand. He reminded them that their salvation is not limited to a point in time, an emotional event, a prayer, walking an aisle. But since the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is true, it makes a difference in absolutely everything that we do. In other words, another way to think of the gospel is not just ABC like we would learn in VBS, I learned growing up, the ABCs of becoming a Christian. The gospel is not just ABC. The gospel is A to Z. It is everything. We never grow beyond it. It is the foundation on which we build our lives. And so these truths make a difference. And they mean three things that I've seen in this passage for us. Not limited to three things, but we're going to talk about three. The first is that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of our faith. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of our faith. This event is so significant and so central that it changes everything for those who believe. And and let me stop right here for a moment to just make this clear. The gospel is not just something we hear and then walk away and we can say that we're saved. There's a response demanded of the gospel. It's that we repent and believe. Repent of our sins and trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord. If you've not done that here today, I beg of you, repent, trust Jesus. He is the way to be saved. There is a way to be saved from your sins. He has made it possible. In God's love for us, there's a way to be saved. Take that way. Grab hold of Jesus. Trust him as Lord and Savior of your life. Do not delay any longer. And man, if this is true for you, if the gospel is already something that you've grabbed a hold of, if you've already trusted in Jesus to save you, then you have to know that the gospel is not something that you've received that now you graduate beyond, that you go to the next level in your faith in Jesus. Instead, it is the foundation behind which everything is built. Because ultimately, if Christ's sacrifice didn't happen, then all Christianity is is some good morals that are some good ideas to live by because everyone kind of gets along better. But if Christ's sacrifice is true, and it is, then Christianity is transformed from good morals, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and don't steal, don't lie, don't murder. 
it, it takes Christianity from good morals to something that is the only means by which we can be saved. Because Jesus' sacrifice was true, because he lived, died, and was raised again, this is no longer just good morals that we hold on to that helps everyone get along better and makes for a little bit more peaceful situation. Instead, the gospel is the only means by which our sin can be taken care of and we can have right relationship with God the Father. If the gospel is the foundation to our lives, then this means that instead of just saying something, it has to be true for us. So, student ministry, let's talk about that for a moment. All right, the big social media platform when I was in high school was Facebook. We all know how that's going now. So, the big social media platform right now is Instagram, right? You can put some pictures up, you can share some stories. Um, you can do all kinds of things on Instagram. It's a really easy way to connect. One of my favorite things that comes out of Instagram is, is the profile tag. I know it sounds silly, it's one of my favorite things, but I'll explain. Think about all the people who have listed Jesus first in their profile for Instagram. Jesus first, put a cross beside it, yay Jesus, and then their lives do not reflect it from that point on. Like the pictures they're posting are definitely not Jesus first. And the point is, if the gospel is true, if it's more than good morals, then Jesus first on an Instagram profile line is not enough. Sharing a Facebook post with a picture of Jesus is not enough because that's not what the gospel is. Instead, the gospel becomes more than just a tagline for our lives, more than just a picture we kind of throw out to people to say, hey, I'm kind of into the Jesus thing. It becomes our very identity. It becomes our very identity. So instead of just being a husband or a wife, you're a husband, wife, meant to display the love of Christ to your spouse. Instead of a mother or father, you're a mother or father meant to display the love of Christ to your spouse. Instead of a teacher, you're a teacher to show the love of Christ to the kids in your classroom. You're no longer working at X place. You're someone who God has sovereignly placed where you work to make disciples of Christ, to share the good news and then train them up that they might share it with others as well. The beauty of this is that because the gospel is true, belonging to Jesus becomes your primary identity. You no longer identify yourself first by where you work, who you are, but you identify yourself first as a believer in Jesus Christ. And everything else falls into submission in that because all of those other things are good gifts that God has given to you, but they are means by which the gospel can be declared, shared, and God can be glorified in it. The second implication we see is that the entirety of God's plan of salvation rests upon God himself. Our responsibility is to repent, believe, and then to pursue. And so if the entirety of God's plan of salvation rests upon himself. Now, what this rescues us from is this idea, this cycle we get ourselves caught in, that we have to love God enough or do enough good things to earn God's love in our place. Instead, when we look at the gospel, we see that what Christ has accomplished is already done. It is finished. It is not up to our effort, and there's nothing we can do to earn it. It is a gift, a gift of grace. And a gift by nature cannot be earned because God loves us too much to keep us in this cycle of trying to earn his love. And at the end of the day, the heart behind trying to earn his love 
is the very thing we're guilty of in the first place. And that is placing someone else on the throne as God instead of who rightfully belongs there, God himself. It's the argument that Paul makes in Romans 1. When we try to do enough good things that we think God will let us pass into heaven on some other means other than Jesus, or we feel guilt-driven to try to make it up to God for the sacrifice that he's made for us, then we are saying that we are the ones in control of salvation, that we are the ones who are powerful and God over that, and we are placing ourselves on the throne instead of God. And I'm not saying this so that those of you in the room who wrestle with the guilt of, man, I feel like I've got to make this back up to God because he sent Jesus and I, I, just, I just want him to be pleased with me. I'm not saying this so that you feel guiltier. I'm saying this because God has set you free. You are free from trying to earn his love, trying to keep his love by doing enough good things. I pray, I pray this for myself as well, but I pray that for those of us in here who struggle with this guilt, this idea that we've done too much for God to love us, I pray that you would understand that when Jesus died on the cross, you were still yet to commit any of your sins. If God wanted to back out, he could have already. But because the plan of salvation rests upon God himself, he knows all things and is all-powerful, he knew what he was getting into when he saved you. He knew what he was getting into. He paid for your sins, past, present, and future sins. And there's no regrets on his end of saving you. He doesn't look after he's drawn someone to himself and they've responded in salvation and say, ah, what did I do there? Ah, I wasn't thinking through that one. That's never a thought that God has. Instead, we are his based upon his plan of salvation and his strength alone. Our responsibility is to repent and believe in this gospel and then to pursue him. And finally, an implication of the gospel is that motivation to pursue Christ comes when we not only understand what we are saved from, but what we are saved to. And maybe this is the biggest thing, something I still wrestle with, but maybe this is the biggest thing I realized my sophomore year in college as I walked through this book. I knew, and I could say instantly, I was saved from sin. That's what the gospel's all about, right? Jesus saved us from sin. What I didn't understand is what I've been saved to. And I fear that if we're not careful, we can fall into the same reality. Many of us have grown up in church in this room. I understand by nature of where we are in South Carolina that a lot of us have at least been indoctrinated to some degree to know that it's salvation from sin. Sin is not necessarily a completely foreign word to us. But what I fear is that as believers, if we just get caught up on what we're saved from and do not balance it out with what we are saved to, we'll find ourselves far more often looking back instead of pushing into and pursuing what God has for us. And that motivation to pursue Christ is going to come when we're not just looking back at the sin we're saved from, but when we understand that we're saved to things. One of those things is that we receive the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. God himself takes up residence within the believer. Paul says, so we preached and so you believed. At the very end of verse 11 in our passage today. Who brought that about? Was it Paul's eloquent speaking that caused them to believe? No, it was God himself at work in the hearts of those people. It was God working through the preaching of his word. 
As we share the gospel as believers in Jesus Christ, we can know that God goes with us and that the Spirit will move in hearts to bring about God's desired result. This does not mean that we take our hands off the wheel. Instead, this is an invitation in because God is working through us. It's the means by which he's seen fit for the gospel to be furthered along through the preaching of the gospel. And when we go, his spirit is with us. We don't go powerless, but we go with God giving us everything we need to accomplish his mission. Likewise, the spirit helps in our weakness as we pursue the Lord a lot of times through spiritual disciplines like prayer and studying scripture. Listen to what Paul would write in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And there are times, I'm sure many of you have experienced in pursuing Christ, that you know you need to pray, or maybe you've just walked into or received news that you didn't expect You know you need to pray, but you sit there and the words won't come. God in his love has given you his spirit so that when those times come, he has set you up to succeed in that as the spirit prays on your behalf. Next, we stand before God through his son. In 1 John 2, 1, John would write, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. A lot of times we kind of get this idea that whenever we're saved, it's almost like God doesn't expect us to sin. Now, hear me. I'm not saying that we have liberty to sin, and I'm not saying that God encourages us to. I'm saying in this process of sanctification, we have a mediator before the Father who pleads our case on our behalf. 100% God, 100% man, the only one perfectly equipped to do that job, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He stands before God as our mediator, pleading our case and offering forgiveness freely as we pursue God and stumble into sin. We can get up and continue to pursue God knowing that Jesus stands as our mediator. The beauty of everything that we've been bought to, saved to, I think is seen in Romans chapter 8. If you want to turn there, you can. We'll have it on the screens for you as well. But in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, Paul ends with this beautiful passage of scripture where it seems like once again his passion to me when I read it just comes off the page. I can almost just hear him just thrilled at the reality of this. This chapter of Romans 8 seems to stand at the pinnacle of scripture where everything in in the Old Testament and the New Testament has been building towards right relationship with God. And it's in Romans 8 that Paul beautifully describes the benefits of relationship with God, how separation has been taken care of. And in verses 31 through 39, it reaches its pinnacle. And he has this to say in light of the sacrifice of Christ, in light of the gospel that we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. 
As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what we are saved to. If God is for us, who can be against us? When was the last time we considered that God is for us? When was the last time we considered that God is sovereignly working to accomplish his plan? Maybe, not just in this sermon this morning, but in how the gospel was still proclaimed despite all of the different setbacks, all of the different things and the workings that have been happening this morning. You can see it clearly in the fact that this message was still preached. That God was sovereignly working to bring this message about here and now at this time. And he does that to the glory of his name because you are loved. So believer, you've been given a mission. You've been given an identity and a purpose. You've not only been saved from sin, but you have been saved to these beautiful benefits where we see the triune God at work that you might enjoy a relationship with him. And I would encourage you to step into that, to walk in that. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gospel, for the good news of salvation from our sins. Thank you that you have made this beautiful plan. You have wired, designed, orchestrated it, executed it flawlessly, and that you have made salvation available to each and every one of us, God. Thank you. God, would you keep us from taking the gospel lightly? Would you keep us from making this beautiful reality smaller than it is? Would you help us look at what you've done for us and wonder and amazement? God, would you cause us to align our lives under it rightly? God, work in our hearts here today to bring about what we need to do to be obedient to this message. We love you. It's in your name we pray. As we are given a time to respond, I just want to say that it would be foolish of me to assume that everyone in here is a believer, that everyone in here is trusting in Jesus to save them from their sins. Maybe you're someone in here today that your story kind of sounds like one of those stories that I've encountered before, where you've prayed a prayer when you were a young child, but you didn't quite understand what it meant. And so you kind of said you love Jesus and pursued him, but there was never a tangible difference in your life. You still ultimately pursued the things that you wanted more than anything else. And when you hear this clear gospel message today, you recognize that you need salvation in him. Maybe you're someone who's come into church for the first time or the first time in a long time. And maybe this is the first time that you've heard something other than do right and Jesus will love you because you've obeyed him. And you recognize that you need the gift of salvation freely offered in Jesus. Then I want to encourage you to come find me. I'll be on this front row and I would love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus to step out as awkward as it may feel, as uncomfortable as it may feel, 
lay aside maybe your reputation that you've grown up in the church and everyone's thought you're saved, but you realize here and now as the Spirit works in your heart that you're not. Lay that aside because I promise you, I promise you there will be celebration upon hearing of your salvation. Maybe you're a believer in here today and you recognize that you've been trying in your own effort to some degree to kind of pay back God back for the love that he's shown you. And you need to rest in the freedom that Christ has earned. I wanna encourage you, these stairs are open as an altar. If you need to kneel, maybe you need to pray where you are. Whatever that looks like, would you be obedient as the spirit guides you? If I can be of any help, I'll be happy to do that. Let's respond as he leads. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.